Bike Not Much podcast. I am your host, Mike Veerman, and I am here with my friend and trusty producer, Max Kerman. Max, how's it going? I'm feeling great. Max, we're not alone today. No, no. Who are we here with? We got Shaney Boy 69. I'm here. You're hanging out in the opening. Right yeah, now, I like coming to the openings when I'm invited. It's rare. It used to be uh, more frequent. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of those things you're definitely keeping tabs on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> today, actually, I made an Instagram um, giving a shout out to the director of the My Heart's Always Yours video. Oh, I noticed. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, I was like, oh, I don't think I ever gave a shout out to Shane or no, you a didn't. photo of him for directing Drake's dad. And now I feel bad because I knew you were. Why did she get a shout out? Well, one, Ashley, our management, mm-hmm. our management, she said, oh, we should remember to thank Alyssa, who did the, who is the director. Oh, okay. I was like, oh, yeah. And, and somebody had sent me a photo from the behind the scenes with Alyssa in it. And it was kind of a cool photo. And also the, the model who's in the shot uh, in that particular photo She's not wearing a bra, and I was wondering if people were going to call us out on like nip, on, the, on seeing the nipples. I, oh, I remember okay. seeing an early cut of the video, and I feel like the transparent <laughs> shirt was very obvious. But then when I watched the final color corrected video online, yeah, they covered it up kind of somehow. Was but, that it? Was that a conscious decision as a band? Uh, I don't know. We, we we had nothing to do with that. We just left it in the hands of Alyssa. But anyway, I thought it was kind of a provocative photo that you normally wouldn't see from the Arkells Instagram. So I thought, oh, let's put it up, see what happens. See we're if anybody t- comments, and nobody has. For listeners, we're talking about. Uh, the video of Farrah Kell's My Heart's Always Yours. Uh, you guys are in an art gallery. Yeah. How, and you, you actually had like had a co-star that you had to act with. I feel like you like actually had to like sit across from her and like emote and, and let her emote back. Yeah. Is this like the kind of first acting you've done in that no, sense? we've had a few videos where we have to, where I have to pretend, where I'm like the male lead and there's some model actress that, um, that's the female lead. Now, Does the fr- Lauren ever get jealous? No, Lauren's never brought it up once. She's in the room right now and not even paying attention. <laughs> I was going to say, I asked Lauren, without your permission, to do the Where You Going video. Like, secretly behind your back, I Facebook oh, message really? her. Oh. So I go, hey, Lauren, will you be in this? She's like, absolutely not. And then the girl we ended up picking ended up being my wife. Being your wife. Isn't that weird? So it is Lauren, crazy. She changed my entire life. Imagine if Lauren had been in the video and then she became your wife. I know. <laughs> and this pod would never happen because you would not be, we wouldn't be friends, Shane. I'll say this. In the early days when we first made music videos, I used to get really excited. But like, oh my God, there's a, profe- there's a professional model. And like, I get to like kind of flirt with her on screen for, you know, a whole day. And now I'm just like, oh, whatever. Because once you have, you know. Old hat? Old hat. Whatever. <laughs> Again, Max's girlfriend is in the room. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm looking at her the whole time. Yeah. Would you, you say know? models bore you right now? <laughs> you know, guys, I, just, I don't even see them as models. They're just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But how was it? How but she was, was great. Actually, Elise, your was, co-star? Yeah. Elise was great. She, Elise she, was the name of the actress? Yeah, it was her name. And uh, she's like going back to school for, I don't know, something smart at U of D. Lauren's um, <laughs> shaking her head right yeah. now. Well, anyway, so that's it. I did. Were you happy with how the video turned out? Uh, I was very happy with the video turned out. Actually, the last tidbit I'll give you is that they kicked everybody out about eight o'clock because there was there's one scene that didn't end up making the cut where they're gonna like splatter paint all over her naked body, which was getting pretty arty. There was a little bit of paint drippage. Yeah, in that we, made the video. Nobody. Uh, oh yeah, that's true. But uh, nobody was allowed on set. Not even the band. You got booted. Everybody got booted. Wow. Like, All right, have fun. Yeah. See you later. Would you ever get naked for a music video? <laughs> no. All right. Really? There goes my next concept. <laughs> not to put you in an uncomfortable position, but uh, which video do you prefer, Drake's Dad or My Heart's Always Yours? Um, I think both videos, I'm not saying this to be diplomatic, serve the purpose of the, of the song. Because, and I don't think... That sounds very diplomatic. That's an incredibly pro answer. You no, told me Drake's Dad was your favorite video. I, 
Okay, personally, Drake's dad is my favorite video. Okay, truth comes out. But but I wouldn't say. But I think that like Alyssa did as good a job as you could on for that particular song. So she deserves full credit too. For our listeners, Shane co-directed uh, Max's video with uh, Mark Myers. That's why he's being so sensitive about which is the best. <laughs> no, and I don't care. I just don't like liars. <laughs> the guys change his mind, hates models, all this. <laughs> Lauren shows up, everything switches. <laughs> um, but I will give you an Instagram uh, like TBT with you. You know, one of these days. That'd be nice. Oh, you heard it here. Well, first. How about Thursday? Let's do it. All right. I'll do it tonight. Okay. Wow. <laughs> All right. What else is going on, fellas? Before uh, you know what today on the show we actually have Sam Roberts. But before we get to Sam, I just want to know if there's anything else going on, fellas. Uh, um, yes, I uh, wrote I think my first ever uh, op-ed for the Hamilton Spectator. Go. <laughs> really? Go? Yeah. This is interesting. I What's did not know this. Mean? Like uh, an opinion piece. Uh, yeah. Opinion. An editorial. editorial. Okay. I wrote it about uh, the LRT in Hamilton. Oh, really? Because That's a hot button issue. It so is for uh, or against for. Set, set it up for our listeners who maybe aren't uh, Hamilton residents. So the LRT, it's, it's kind of like it's kind of like the monorail from The Simpsons. <laughs> it's it's basically just like the monorail. Yeah, uh, but we, you know, I think people that are excited about it hope that it can really change the city for the better. But um, essentially, the the Ontario government has given Hamilton a billion dollars uh, for the. Uh, strict purpose of building an LRT that would run from McMaster University in the West End all the way to Eastgate Mall in the East End. The progressive types around Hamilton are really excited about it because public transportation ought to help everybody. And uh, this is just one other step in sort of improving accessibility around Hamilton and making it more just sort of neighborhood friendly as opposed to a downtown core, which you just drive as fast as you can to get from one end to the other. All right, we're, we'll read the op-ed piece. Okay. <laughs> what, are, what, are the, what are the negatives? Uh, the negatives is that people think it's, um, even though we're getting a billion dollars, there's going to be a lot of upkeep and there's other hidden costs. We're going to have to like rip up like the sewer system and like the electricity lines underneath the roads. There's also uh, local businesses that are going to be affected by all the construction that happens. And there's a lot of people who just say, you know, we got these buses. Why don't we just, why aren't we okay with the buses? Why do you need this shiny new toy? People hate change. (laughs) Yes. Basically people (laughs) hate change. So um, anyway, there's a big city council meeting tomorrow morning. And I've never been to a city council meeting, but our friend uh, Dan and our other friend, uh, Dr. Matt Savelli, who are of very course. pro-LRT, said, Max, you should go to this thing and speak about it because you care about it. And I said, that'd be kind of interesting. And it kind of uh, appeals to my narcissism uh, as just being up in front of people, <laughs> but, but also something that I care about. Will you bring a guitar? <laughs> I wrote a song. Yeah. It's like, the Guys. times they are a-changing. Why say it when I can sing it? <laughs> Your whole piece, you sing. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, it's like Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah. Uh, but, then, but then I thought, okay, you know, maybe I, I won't get a chance to speak or anything, but maybe I'll just write an op-ed. So I emailed the spectator. I said, give me some space in the page. And uh, they did. So it just got a. Uh, it's gonna be in tomorrow's newspaper. Do you think oh my you're goodness. gonna be the mayor of Hamilton one day? Ooh, good question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Would there be positions for Shane and I <laughs> in your yeah, government what, in the cabinet? What, what what position would you want, Shane? Do you want a good city job? I'm already offering. These yes, positions. if it pays well. I don't know anything about <laughs> politics or anything. But yeah, do you have any opinion on the LRT? I just found out it's coming, and it's all good, man. <laughs> I welcome it. 
Uh, what about you, Mike? Have you thought about this issue at all? I don't know enough about it to have a strong opinion, but I have heard the rumblings. I'll read your op-ed piece. Uh, it's I, I, All I know is that like some people are up in arms about it, and they're like, oh, we don't want this. We don't need it. It's going to mess up like through traffic for local businesses, and do we really need it to get from A to B? The city's working fine. I haven't looked into the minutia of it to have a strong opinion. Maybe I'm a bad Hamiltonian. No, no, no. I, you know, to be honest, like... I get most of my information from the raging lefties, mm. uh, especially in our friend group, Dan and Matt, uh, being a couple of them. But the people that are for it, the the information that's been provided for why LRTs make sense, specifically in Hamilton, seems to be like really well uh, researched and documented by like people at McMaster University and other advocates who who see the good in like good public transit. And the people who have been against it, especially city councilors. The main reason that I've heard is, well, this doesn't really help my constituency, so I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And that, to me, isn't a very good reason to, to, to stop something. Because just because it doesn't serve your neighborhood doesn't mean it's not necessarily a good thing for other people in your city. Right. When you write a piece like that for The Spectator as a you know the front man of a band that identifies so strongly with Hamilton, are you concerned about the backlash where people are going to be like, stay in your lane, kid? Uh not really. I think I think a lot of people expect like artists and musicians to generally be on that side of the aisle. So no one's that surprised if I've ever come out and said something like in political in a in a political nature. Is your band kind of a political band? Uh, not not explicitly, but I'd say that we talk about mm-hmm. politics a lot. Nick, Nick probably has a slightly different opinion than I do. I think Mike and I are, are pretty well on the same page on this particular. Show. Is Nick for the LRT? Nick, because I'd love his counter op-ed. Oh yeah, <laughs> give him some space too. Yeah, uh, I don't know if Nick is against the LRT, but he's always in favor of helping the most needy people. And if anything smells like it might just be like servicing like middle class people like me ahead of the needs of the most needy, then he gets very suspicious. Which I appreciate. Which I'm glad he he's suspicious of. Shane, if you could write an op-ed piece about anything in Hamilton, what would it be about? Um, geez, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Threw it out there for some comedy and got gold back. (laughs) There was way too much pressure on that. But I did, I did say I had something going on, but no one cares. Shane, what do you got going on? I wanted to do a teaser for the, uh, the dessert because maybe people are skipping it. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. So here's the thing. We're going to something that's never happened to me. Ever. Maybe never happened to you guys either. Okay, hold on. We're going to get to Sam Roberts uh, in a second. But after the Sam interview, which is also very good, we're going to come back and have the dessert with our pop culture aficionado, Shane Kirsten Cunningham. And this is now uh, your tease. Go for it. Well, I, I just said the tease, didn't I? <laughs> I say it again? Yeah, go for it. Well, something happened to me that's never happened to probably either of you guys. And uh, wait for it after the... <laughs> <laughs> Wait, uh, you see, I don't know now. You do promos for a living, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, just stick around for the dessert. It's going to be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sam Roberts, Max. This is a buddy of yours. Yeah, was he as handsome in person to you? Yeah, yeah, he was very handsome. People love talking about his good looks. He was. Uh, I feel like Sam was. Uh, he was just really cool, man. He was laid back. He, he rolled in. He's smart. He's very like. A, he's a wise man. And he was he was open. He was he seemed he was really down to talk about like growing up, uh, sort of like his parents, how they sort of were very artistic. And interestingly, he got into the idea because he didn't really break till he was like twenty six, twenty seven, and he'd had a lot of setbacks, and he wasn't you know seeing any sort of success. And he was very open about you know dating 
a girl, his wife now, and how she'd stuck with him through all that time. And it's like, when you're a guy in a band, but you're not really seeing much success, you know, you go to a dinner with the, the folks, and it's like, oh, what are you doing, uh, Sam? And it's like, oh, I'm still in the band. It's like, oh, still grinding it out, you know? And it's like, <laughs> he's like in his own family, like he'd go to barbecues, and it's like, so Sam, what are you up to? And it's like something that's so relatable for anyone that's ever been in a band and has tried to make a go of it past like the university age. Because he was like, you know, you're in university and you can do this band, um, but it's like you can kind of put off having to like get, you know, quote unquote, a real job or a more conventional job. And anyway, he was very open about sort of the the sort of concerns that come with that. And then obviously the relief of having Brother Down become a huge success kind of when you when you least expect it. How much do you think he makes a year? <laughs> I have no idea. Did you know that I covered a Sam Roberts song in high school, in my high school band? Really? Yeah. Does, does Sam know this? Yeah, I've told him because we played with Sam a number of times, and and we, we share the same booking agent. There's a period bridge of time to nowhere. Uh, no, uh, we we covered "Don't Walk Away, Eileen." Oh yeah, and he and actually one of the first concerts that really sort of I think shaped the way I think about live music was Sam Roberts at Sunnyside Park in Toronto in 2004, September 2004. Just before I went away to University of McMaster, I saw him play, and it blew me away, and. Um, I bought a T-shirt, and actually, the reason why I met Nick from the band is because I was wearing a Sam Roberts Band T-shirt, on, like that I just bought, and it was like the second day of school. And then Nick came up and said, "Hey, I love Sam Roberts. What's your name?" And then I said, "Max, do you play an instrument?" And he said, "I kind of play bass." And Nick was in the band. Wow, the rest man. is history. Yeah, music man, the great connector. Yeah. How do you, how would you describe your uh, you and Sam are friends, and I knew you and Sam are friends, and I've only kind of interacted with I, I did a thing with for much like um a, kind of an interview for the much twenty fifth anniversary years ago at the MMVAs, so that was my only sort of interaction with Sam. I don't know Sam at all, but I know that you know him, and I actually forgot to be like, hey, like Max is a part of this podcast, like that was going to be my in, mm-hmm. but because we were doing a Facebook Live thing, it all just happens so fast, and you forget to say something. But he was so sweet to me anyway. I wonder if he knew that you were affiliated with the pod when people sort of presented it to him. Um, yeah, there's a good chance that like uh, Tony from Universal would have said, oh, this is the thing that Max is involved with. It's possible. Yeah, yeah and, I, and Sam's always been super kind to us, and he definitely has like set the tone for like you know how you treat the opening band. I remember him like giving us a shout-out, give it up for the Arkells, and it's, it means so much when you're the opening band to have your name heard like on the PA by the headlining band. But I, def- but I definitely feel like with the guys that I really look up to that like were part of my formative years, whether it's John K. Samson from The Weaker Thans or Joel Plaskett or Sam, like I, they've, they're always very nice to me, but I, I've always been very um, resistant to like getting any closer to them. I kind of want to keep them in, like, in the shrine, you know? I don't want to like, I don't really feel the need to like be buddy-buddy with them or to hit them up. I just want to be like, oh, hey, how's it going? Give them a hug, catch up for a couple minutes and let them sort of live, live in my head more. Yeah. Want to get to Sam? Let's do it. How's it going? It's going all right. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm very well. It's yeah. Friday. Do you like when you're in a band? Do you even like? Is a Friday? Do you Friday? know what day of the week it is? That was where I was going. With it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do now, but I didn't for a long time. I had a really, <laughs> right. really hard time with seasons. Uh, yeah, days of the week, hours. Uh, just general time frame stuff was not my forte necessarily, but I've become a far more regimented individual. Yeah. So uh, do you get excited for a Friday then like others? I do, you know, because my kid, I have three kids at home and, uh, Friday means that we're, uh, it's a big deal for kids. Yeah, it's a huge deal. So whatever your kids are excited about, like Halloween, for example, we're coming up on Halloween, huge day. They got their costumes planned. Ninja. 
Cleopatra and an undecided, which is dangerous because it's gonna, you know, it could end in tears. Of course. So we're trying to make sure that that costume uh, is sorted out. I probably at this point I've left it pretty late again. I'm probably gonna do uh, a wizard again. It's five years in a row. Oh, just being a wizard. Same wizard. A generic wizard. Just generic wizard, exactly. So uh, yeah, year five. Okay. On the wizard front, and uh, you know, but like I was saying, anything that your anything that your kids are excited about. It translates to you. Yeah, it tends to take on a new a new sheen for you as well. So, Christmas, Fridays, um, so it's 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 nice because before that the days of the week meant very little to me. Well, having kids, does that? I mean, you've been touring a long time. Mm-hmm. When you have children, does it change the dynamic of when you go on the road and sort of how you go about your business? For sure. You know, I mean, uh, obviously you're always looking forward to going home, but you have to, you know, you have to put as much of your of yourself into your shows as you possibly can to to justify the fact that you're away from home mm-hmm. you know to give meaning to your absence in a way so i always i always feel like i'm doing them a, a, a grave disservice if i'm not really sort of throwing myself heart and soul into to every show and every day on the road to know? justify the time just away. to justify the time away yeah, yeah I mean. this is you know this is our family too and even even when they're not with me physically i'm sort of representing uh, our life out there. So, uh, so yeah, it, it definitely has changed the way I feel about it. Um, on this pod, we like to get into sort of minutia of how artists do their work, mm-hmm. how creatives sort of go about their business. And I guess one of the things we want to know is like, can you describe your day-to-day sort of writing regime? Do you write every day? Are you sort of cyclical in your writing? Mm-hmm. I'm more cyclical for sure. And, uh, but the, even in that, it's changed quite a bit in the last few years. And, and again, maybe because I have this more regimented routine, day-to-day routine, uh, it's actually helped me a lot because I used to be a firm believer in waiting for lightning to strike and mm. waiting for the conditions to be right, you know, and can you write a song before midnight, you know, is that, was that, uh, could you write good rock and roll music, uh, you know, in a sort of regimented daily routine? And the answer uh, I found out was yes, you can, and it's actually helpful to just have your coffee in the morning and you know, read the paper and then go downstairs and turn on the lights in, in your little studio and start making music. Whether whether you have an idea to work on or uh, you feel that sense of inspiration or not, the inspiration will come by just going down and engaging in the act of making music. That That's when you open yourself up to uh, to good things happening. Even if you don't feel like doing it, force yourself to yeah, do it. Yeah, force yourself to do it. All. And I, I read a, a, a lot of writers do that. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, like novelists. Just anyone, just you got to create. Yeah, whether you know whether you have an idea, like an earth-shattering idea or not, go downstairs and start typing. And I'm the same way with writing music now. But that being said, when I'm on the road, I don't, I don't write very much. I collect, I gather ideas. Sure. Know? Just little. Do you do the notebook thing? Or I that? have the notebook for sure, and I have my my, my voice memos. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I'm rec- rec- recording these, uh, you know, little melodies or beats. Sometimes, you know, I do a lot of like beatboxing and stuff <laughs> like that. And or you 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 know, sometimes it actually sounds like music or a song. And, and then afterwards, I go back and I refer to it, and it means absolutely nothing, and I've lost any sense of what it was supposed to be. The spark. What happened? Yeah, it has no shape. It's like this weird, yeah. just you know, uh, disembodied idea. And then the ones that do kind of bring back whatever feeling it was that made you want to record them or write them down in the first place are usually the songs that I, I pursue. 
Right. Do you, are you, when you demo and stuff like that, are you precious about showing your demos to the guys in the band or? Yeah. I don't show that anything until it's fit. I feel like it's finished or, wow. you know, a first, a, you know, a reasonable first draft of something. Enough for collaboration right. or like, I guess, opinion, feedback. If, yeah. I, I don't, I don't just say, ah, I've got an idea for a riff. Ah, what do you guys think? You know, is this, it's, it's never like that. I like to really throw myself into a song and, and when I feel like I've done what it is that I have to do or, sort of, or extracted enough of it from, you know, from your head and put it down on tape to, uh, to sort of represent it in its best possible light, you know. And then I sit there nervously to this day with my bandmates watching them, like their reaction. I'm like, oh, is Nuge's foot tapping, you know? <laughs> is he like, is he bobbing his head? He's still the nervousness. Yeah, that, that to me is, yeah, I, I find it one of the most exciting part, parts for making a record is when I've got a song ready enough that I'm, I'm, you know, I play it for the guys and I watch for their response. And uh, it's it's one of the most meaningful parts of it too. So, cause when I get the thumbs up from them, then I, I feel like, all right, you know, I've done something good. Mm -hmm. done good work and now I can trust in the fact that if we go and record it properly and and you know make a good record that this will translate to other people they're like the you know to me they represent it's like a microcosm of humanity you know <laughs> the guys because they each have different very different musical personalities and I have to I, I trust all of their their different perspectives and in that's like, like a diverse uh, consensus exactly so if they, if I know that each one of them sort of finds something good in a song that I've written then uh, if you sort of extrapolate on that or you know, expand that to represent humanity, then I've kind of got a, a lot of co bases covered. Um, growing up, were your parents in the arts or creative? I, I'd call them creative people, but not they weren't professionally creative. You know, my dad played the harm he played a mean harmonica. Oh, really? And uh, he had a ten dollar Spanish guitar that I learned to play. The neck was like this thick. Oh yeah. Yeah, you can barely <laughs> as a child. Those are murder. Uh, you can barely get your hand around it, but he. <laughs> He always told me it was ten dollars. <laughs> he never failed to uh, to mention it. Um, but uh, so I grew up in a house where music was always playing, and music was we were encouraged, if not forced, to take uh, lessons from an early age. Oh wow! And now, in retrospect, uh, I obviously realized how important that was, but how how dedicated they were to us growing up with music in our lives, because it wasn't just sort of. Um, oh, they don't really display any real aptitude or, or uh, you know, uh, passion for it. They didn't care. They were like, you're taking these lessons till you move out of this house. It'll you benefit know? you down the road and you'll, regardless you will of be better think. off for it, you know. And for, for myself, that was the violin. I started playing violin at, at a very early age. I still play. I still take lessons with the same teacher who's been teaching me for 37 years now. Wow. And... Um, you know, my te my kids are taught by him as well. So, and then my brothers all took piano lessons. And and again, it wasn't just sort of light-hearted. Well, let's just see. You know, they were very very diligent as parents in terms of making sure that we practiced. And and uh, we, they never we'd bring our I'd bring my violin on vacation. Were there times when you resented? Oh, uh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't having any of it. You wanted it. No, I loved it, but I hated it at the same time. You hate anything that you know requires that much discipline as yeah. a child. You know, you just naturally sort of rebel against it. But now, in rec now I do it. It worked because now I do it under my own, you know, of my own will. Yeah. And I choose to do it. And there's a, 
you know that moment when you go from being at the you know under the the watchful eye of your parents to to deciding to make it a part of your life on your on your own terms uh, is a very sort of important shift when it comes to your relationship, especially with a, uh, with a musical instrument. And uh, you know that being said, though uh, I as a I guess I was about ten or eleven, I started playing guitar uh, as a as a response to the sort of rigid discipline of playing classical music. The guitar was this freeing thing and I just spent hours and hours in my bedroom learning Beatles songs and yeah it becomes its own talk. creative outlet yeah I, actually that's, that was gonna be my question you started to shift into your own sort of independent mm -hmm. songwriting and creative was there a band that was seminal to you that you were like this is why I want to do this this is who I want to emulate I mean going back to you know the, the old stuff or whatever you want to call it definitely the Beatles and, yeah and uh the Kinks was a, another. The Who, Paul Simon, was a really big uh, influence for me in terms of the early songs that I learned how to. You know, you try to Tom Petty, trying to pick pick them apart. I could never read tab properly, so I, <laughs> right. you know, I always had to kind of do everything by ear. And um, and then as I got into high school, and you kind of wanted to find your own the music of your time, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the Jesus and Mary Chain and uh, the Smiths, the Happy Mondays. A lot of music coming out of England at the time. It was it was sort of a like grunge, or old, or you know, or you listen to the like classic rock, or there was this other. And and at the time we didn't have the internet, uh, and you couldn't hear it on the radio. So we had this one radio uh, show with this DJ Claude Rajat. He's this like absolute legend in Montreal and we listened to his show every Monday night I, on my way home from violin lessons actually uh, with my dad we'd be driving and I'd put on the, the Claude Rajat's and he would go uh, and find all these bands around the world that you could never hear otherwise and I heard bands like the Stone Roses for the first time ah. and uh, the Charlatans and uh, Primal Scream and and much music at the time also was this way of you know, seeing these bands, if you stayed up late enough on a Friday night, you'd discover stuff. You would discover stuff. So we'd, I'd watch, I'd, I'd wait, or we'd tape, you know, on a VHS tape, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. You'd tape much late night on a, on, a, on a Friday night, and you'd end up seeing the Stone Roses video. And, and we kept those tapes. They were like gold because you, kept, you had no other way of, of seeing any of these. Only you hear those songs. The only way. Visuals. Exactly. Yeah. So, or you'd go and buy the record, and it was in the import section. You had a guy, the guy would have to order it, and you'd have to wait for a month for it to come or whatever. So, so there was this whole process of, of discovering our own music, and that really fueled why we started, uh, you know, playing as a band. You know, yeah. You, you identify with those other kids in your, in your high school who, uh, are also into the same thing, who want to dress the same way, and, and it was very much about that. You beginning. find your people. You find your people exactly. So I found, uh, one of my best friends. Uh, his name's Mike Juretic. He was our drummer. Uh, for a, a really long time, and uh, we started the band together. And James, our our bass player, who's currently still in the band after all these years, and Eric, uh, who we, I also went to high school with. So it was sort of born out of that that sense of community that came out of finding the, all these new bands that were our bands. Mm -hmm. In in the space between sort of starting a band, grinding, playing gigs, and then having success with Brother Down, were there times where you felt like this isn't going to happen or maybe I need to get a more conventional job. Oh yeah, I mean that that's, you know, that's 
th those were tough times because you felt like this this thing that you needed to do was getting further and further away from from being a, a possibility a reality that was kind of I can't see slipping away because I never had it you know you know but the idea of it as something that was real and urgent uh, was uh, it was there every day I mean we, we lived and breathed it uh, every single day and when you feel like you come out of university for example we all we all went to university together as well and uh, it was easy to have the band going during school we probably should have spent a little bit more time paying attention to our school work but uh, <laughs> it worked out it was okay because we had this other thing and it kept everybody off your back basically you know you're at school you're doing your work but we're also you know jamming all the time and you know driving down to Toronto and playing gigs and um, but when you get out of school the clock starts right away you know day one I remember my first job out of I didn't. I I did my degree in English literature, and the bookstore across the street didn't hire. Like across the street from the university I just graduated from, didn't hire me for my. And I was like, I can't. I just got a degree in English, and I can't get a job at a bookstore. I was like, this is not going well. <laughs> 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 so I ended up washing dishes right out of the gate, and you know, yeah, like you say, that's a good way of putting it. The clock starts ticking, and uh, my parents were always really um they're not they're free spirited in a way but they're also quite traditional so they weren't they weren't dis they never discouraged me but they they you know they weren't always like oh you've got to follow your dream you know um like there was a limit to the, there was there was a limit pursue. and the limit came out in the form of just you know just concern like you know hey how much longer can you keep doing this without going and, and trying to get a job, uh, you know, a, a more, like you say, a more conventional job and, and starting a career path uh, that might put a roof over your head one day, you know, and food on the table, allow you to have a family and all these other things that's become, they were such distant future ideas for so long and all of a sudden they're very real and very present, you know, and uh, I just, we fought it off. Not just myself, but my bandmates as well. We just f kept fighting it off, fighting off uh, that inevitability, waiting for an opportunity. Because it's always just this feeling that you're just one song away from people realizing that you're, th there's, you're this band uh, that they're going to want to get behind. Mm -hmm. And uh, that may or may not have been the truth. Maybe we weren't a band. I'm pretty sure, listening back to it, if I listen to my, that we weren't a band that people should have invested in their <laughs> emotional, you know lives and money into at the time but in the in that process of fighting for it we did become a band uh that had something to say and a way of saying it that i think you know was was uh becoming more and more relevant so mm -hmm. and and now drawing back on that experience i would never trade in those years of uh of struggle for for anything and it lasted till we were 27 years old i mean most most people at that point would have hung up the towel or hedged you know, or you know Exactly. Kind of one like, foot out the yeah, 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 for sure. Which I think yeah. is a, you know, but it's very difficult. It's not the kind of thing where you can just hedge your best. Well, because once you start hedging, it's kind of of course the, the odds of it going. Like I, yeah, it's kind of nice to drive a car. It's kind of nice to you know live in a nicer apartment and you eat a nice to, meal out with my exactly friends. to yeah. go out for dinner. It's a, you know you start to you start to sort of gravitate towards that and but when you want to do this and you you know you you sort of. Are not going to take no for an answer. Then you 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 make a lot of sacrifices uh, on that 
on that sort of fundamental personal level on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, my wife and I have been together for 25 years, and I think about the first uh, 12 years that we were together and how she sort of had to deal with this guy <laughs> who played in a band, you know. Oh, yeah, my boyfriend's in a band. Um, and I'm sure that may, maybe that was appealing at first, but I'm sure it becomes a lot less appealing as you're, you know, 25, 26 years old. So I, you know, thank God she stuck with me. Because you know? <laughs> yeah. it would have been so easy at that point to say, I'm going to go out with this guy who works for the bank. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, we can take me out for dinner. Yeah. You know? Did you do that thing where you, like, you go, because it's not so much the girlfriend, it's the girlfriend's parents, where then you go for dinner and then you're kind of, it's like, so what are you up to? What do you got? Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, well, we're going to hit the road. It's like, uh, you know, and it's like, it becomes sort of like a, a weird feeling about explaining it. I, and, I, and there was a lot of explaining. <laughs> uh, there was a lot of explaining for a long time, you know. And it would be your relatives as well, you know. Uh, oh, your yeah. aunts and your uncles and everybody. So, you know, what's happening? Oh, still the band, hey? Okay, well, that must be nice. But uh, you know, and you you just have to fight that off. And, and again, in doing that, you're sort of you don't realize it at the time. I only realize it looking back now that we were. That, that desperation was informing the music that we were making all along. And it was starting to sculpt it into something uh, uh, just more potent, basically. Mm -hmm. And Brother Down was written at the time. And I didn't, know I, was, I didn't know I was writing the song that was going to essentially launch our career at the time. But I was living under the foosball table at my friend's apartment, basically. Wow for six months. Uh, I'd gone out to California armed with this demo, and I'd given up my apartment. I lived in this one place uh, with my now wife uh, for, for a long time, and I'd given it up, and we, I took our, our demo that had the worst album artwork of all time uh, to California. We, we got a driveaway car, do you know what that is? When you, a dealership in Vancouver would buy a car from, from one in Montreal. Oh, and gotcha. you drive the car across. Drop it off at the dealership. Exactly, right. you drop it off at the dealership. But basically, aside from the gas, it's a free ride out to, to Vancouver. So, so we drove out to Vancouver and then made our way down to California. And I was going to go and meet people in the music business. You know, I was going to try. I was going to be a big break. I was just, well, I was going to try to make something happen. We ended up spending uh, three months there or so. And I, I basically came back feeling very disheartened at the, at the, you know, everybody was talking about making music, but I never actually saw anybody uh, doing anything. Everybody would just sort of float from one record deal to another. Nobody went on tour. It was just this very sort of incestuous, self-congratulatory scene there. And I, and I, I can't, I can't, I'd come from this place where everybody's struggling to do anything and everybody's, you know, uh, bands like the Deers, uh, you know, I, making this incredible music and nobody's paying attention and really again putting their their lives and their heart and soul on the line and then I go down there and the, the, my first sort of taste of the business was not a positive one so I kind of came back and I think if ever there was a time where I was like that's it uh it was then you know uh this isn't what I even want to get into really that was the lowest that was, that was sort of the lowest disheartened and in that time I you know anyway came back to Montreal had to start my life over again and uh Again, living under the, under the foosball table, okay. and they would play. They would play games of foosball. At night. Like, <laughs> they I mean, I like, God love my friends. They're so nice, you know. They were like, "Come on, stay." And they, again, I've had so many people help me out along the way. That kind of kept the door, helped me keep the door open, you know. And uh, 
but yeah, they would play at two o'clock in the morning. They'd come home from the bar. They'd be like, "Let's have a game," and I'd be like sleeping there, you know, with my. Um, the, but in that time, I wrote Brother Down. Didn't didn't really know again that it was going to sort of help kickstart the, our, our whole career. But my friend Jordan Zadorozny, uh who is living in Pembroke, Ontario, who had actually gone and stayed with in LA, he was one of the first people I ever knew to who got a record deal oh, from wow. Montreal. And he'd been down in LA and again got in, but he came back to uh, to Canada as well. I think just realized that he was it was a more uh, fruitful, uh, creative environment. And he asked me to come out to his place in Pembroke, Ontario, and to go into his parents' basement where he had this recording studio set up, and we recorded a four-song EP uh, that ended up, we ended up adding two more songs to it, and it, it basically became the starting point for, for everything. But it kind of grew out of this uncertainty. It was just, oh, well, yeah, sure, let's go make music. That's just what we do. And then one of the guys who was hanging around, this uh, now a friend of mine, Matt LeMay from Pembroke, was hanging around the sessions while we were recording, and he took a copy of the CD without any of us knowing it and mailed it to uh, one of the radio stations in Ottawa at the wow. time. And they, as you know, this just doesn't happen, not in commercial radio. But for whatever reason, the DJ heard Brother Down and decided that he was going to play it on the radio. And then Matt sent another copy to the other competing radio station across town. And they'd heard that the other station, the other playing station it, yeah. had played it. And they both just started, sort of got into this pissing contest. So you're getting spun on both stations We're getting now. spun on both stations <laughs> and people were calling in, you know, and people were responding going, who's that? And nobody really even knew who it was. We didn't even have a record deal at the time. And uh, uh, things just grew from there, you know? Yeah. And we've been holding on ever since. Um, this album, Terraform. Uh, you've recorded in a, a lot of different places, right? Mm -hmm. Australia, Chicago, Montreal. Yeah. Um, and then this one in Kingston at the Bathhouse. Yeah. I could see like the, the benefit in jumping around, obviously different creative inspiration. Are there any negatives to sort of jumping around like that when you're trying to record a record? I mean, you know, in, in Australia, the negative was that it was just too much fun. You know, <laughs> the beach was too close, and sure. it was really hard to work every day. Uh, you'd go out and go surfing for six hours in the morning. You'd come back, and you'd be, like, I just want to take a nap, you know, and uh, or go exploring and and not sit there and, and try to, you know, hash out a record. So, uh, but you know. For me, the the toughest thing about it right now is just distance from home. It always comes down to that now. How far away from home am I, and how long am I going to be away? Um, but at the same time, you just have to recognize that you only get one chance to make a record every few years, and that is incredibly uh, vital to your band's continued health, but also your idea of where you're going. And uh, where you record, like you say, it absolutely provides inspiration, but it also comes to define the time for you and mm. how you relate back to it in, in terms of your own your own sense of who you are as a band, your own story. Like, oh yeah, Australia, that was the time, you know. It's markers and helps it, it, your sense of identity. Exactly, and it helps to, you know, otherwise you can look back over the, the last 15 or 20 years and just sort of, it's just one blur. Uh, 
but those those times when you do go and make a record, uh, we find it really important to go somewhere that sort of makes it its own experience. Mm -hmm. You've touched on social issues on many of your songs from past records. Mm -hmm. uh, were there any themes in your head on this record? You know, I I, I think this was one of the first um, times. Well, I, I you know the first song title the title track Terraform I think it refers to um, sort of the wreckage of a planet basically. The planet could be seen as an actual planet in our case. You know, uh, what we're doing to it. What, what kind of world we're leaving to our kids is a huge preoccupation of mine, as I think it is to any any parent, and not just parents, but people who care about you know what we leave behind. What we leave behind, yeah. And uh, so that that song was sort of born out of that idea of leaving this place in the the ruins of it and going and having an opportunity to start start over. Well, the, the even the title of the record, the, that, that word is, you know, it conjures so much science fiction to me, you know, the idea of sort of making a planet or a place livable where it yeah. once wasn't, yeah. um, through terraforming. Is it, do you think that's like, is the idea hopeful? I think it is. I mean, it's, you know, the, the whole notion that it's never, never so broken that it can't be fixed. Right. And, um, yeah, I think ultimately, all, all my songs are optimistic in a sense, and they all, but but a lot of them go to a dark place in order to come back to the to the light, and you have to sort of be willing to go down that road, you know. And um, yeah, you almost need the fall for the redemption. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and I think in this record, just talking about um, life as I live it now. I'm 42 years old. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm a dad. I have three kids, and I. Uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot that has to go into making that work, you know. There's a lot that goes into making a family work on a day to day basis to make. So I didn't want to shy away from writing about that this time around. Uh, I think on our last record, it was very much about the future, you know, uh, about where where we're headed. Because again, my kids were younger, and I was, I was you know, you become afraid for them. Mm -hmm. you know, if not for yourself, then you're definitely afraid for them. Does the fear, I mean, I guess you're always going to be afraid for yourself, but is it, is it like, is it diminished in a lot because it's almost more so about your kids? I don't have children, so I don't know. No, it's intensified, you know, it's, it, it's, 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 uh, you're, you're, you feel like you can deal with anything, you know, mm. but you're just worried about, you know, how they're going to live through it or what they're going to have to live through. Uh, but on this record, I try, I really try not to dwell on it too much. It was more just about sort of. Uh, celebrating, celebrating love and and family, um, in in all the shades that we we sort of experience it. And uh, but that being said, there's always there's always a time to sort of take a dig at you know one issue or another. It's just sort of bound up in what I think about when I write songs too. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with maybe the tragically hip and how you processed the last six months? Well, our relationship goes back to the, the earliest days of our of our career, um, and basically they gave us our our chance to be here. You know, uh, we had we had a song on the radio, but we didn't have uh, a presence on stage or a uh, an opportunity necessarily to, to go and translate that into something more substantial in terms of, you know, again, carving out a career for ourselves. So when they asked us to go 
on tour with him, um, it really gave us our first forum on a national scale to go and see what it was that you know how we, how are we going to go and forge a, a fan base, and more than that, it was it was the the best possible sort of master and apprentice relationship that you could ever hope for. Just standing on stage on the side stage every night, just being able to do that alone. Mm-hmm. As a Canadian kid, was like the best education just, in the world. Uh, uh, you know, growing up wa- listening to them, uh, and all of a sudden you're on the stage with them, and you hear them, you know, Gord shouting out your name to the crowd and thanking you for your show, and you know, it's surreal to say the least. But just watching them play every night, wa- just seeing the degree of commitment to to the show was the best lesson I've ever learned. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I still, you know, we're still chasing that. We're still, and I went to see them play this summer in Ottawa. And uh, again, seeing that they'd found another gear uh, after all this time just shows you that you can never put enough of yourself into into the way you play for people. And that's just something that, you know, uh, I think I've I've taken it to heart and I've, but it's also like this dangling carrot out there you're just sort of constantly pursuing it now uh, in the face of, of everything that they've done and everything they continue to do and again you know they're not done Gord's putting out a, a solo record uh, Secret Path and he's again uh, he's an activist as well, uh, and he's incredibly passionate about uh, the next chapter that he's still writing so you know I'm always just full of hope and optimism yeah. and, and again awe at the fact that they're able to uh, sustain excellence sustain excellence and reinvention yeah. a fearless reinvention that's another thing that we don't talk enough about I think when we talk about the hip is the fact that they've uh, they've been very daring in the, in the music that they've made and you know not just necessarily gone over the same ground in order to guarantee a, a legacy it's always been about pushing the envelope and you know making sure that people realize that they're a creative force not yeah. just a, a sort of you know one trick pony riding off into the sunset lastly um, you guys are obviously a very revered Canadian band you fantastic live performers where do you see yourself in 10 years? Still grinding, still doing it? I can only imagine that we're still going to be grinding, hopefully talking to you guys, yeah. you know, about the next chapter, the next record. I mean, we don't, we're not a, we're not a, a backwards looking band, you know? We don't dwell too, too much on, uh, on the past. And we think a lot about where we're going musically that goes into every record that we make and every record that we make is sort of a there's this incredible sense of renewal and you know uh, just new opportunity that comes with it and you open some doors you close other doors you make new fans you lose old fans you know it's just a process of uh, uh, yeah of growing but but there's there's no lack of ambition and I don't mean that like we're trying to dethrone Elton John (laughs) (laughs) I got you you know it's just it's a creative ambition it's creative ambition to just still have something to say uh, musically speaking for as long as you live and as long as that drive still exists as long as the creative well hasn't run dry then this is what we'll be doing okay 
So, see you in 10 years. Welcome to everybody's favorite part of the podcast, the desserts. And this dessert was actually teased if you were listening to the front end of the podcast. So it better be a good one, Shaney boy. What you got? Well, I'm just walking on the street on Friday. I'm like very hungover because I went to a, um, what's that band called, Alex? Went to a Born Ruffian show. Actually <laughs> They're like one of your favorite, favorite bands. bands. I know, they are. <laughs> Sorry, my brain's all over the place today. Um, so I'm just walking. Good all show, this by the way? Yeah, it was awesome. Okay. Yeah, and... Uh, but I'm feeling horrible the next day because we didn't get home till like 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. And then so I got like probably three hours sleep, go through the work day, kind of feeling bad at the end of the day. And then a girl stops me on the street, like very excited to see me. And she says, are you Shane Dawson? And I say, and I'm feeling horrible. I'm just like caught off guard. I say, what? No. <laughs> and she's just smiling like ear to ear. And I'm just looking at her. I go, no. I go, weirdly. My name is Shane, though. And she goes, yeah, I listen to your podcast. She's like, it's really, really good. And I go, oh, thanks. (laughs) And then I just stare at her. And I think she wanted, like, I think she thought I was, like, a funny guy. Like, so she wanted, like, a funny anecdote or something. Or, like, what's going on, Zany Shaney or something. And then. (laughs) That's a good nickname. Zany Shaney. (laughs) That's new. I remember that. I just stared at her. And then she looked all of a sudden disappointed. She goes, okay, this is getting too weird. I'm going to go. <laughs> and she turned around and then walked away. Did but, you find out her name? Uh, no, but every stop, like uh, we're, we're just, wa- I'm walking to the bus stop and there's, uh, you know, red lights where yeah. you got to stop. And I was at every red light with her, just standing <laughs> beside her. <laughs> but I think it's because we've been doing these Facebook live things uh-huh. that, uh, I, what's your opinion on these? I love them. Doing? I think they're great. Are we going to continue to do these? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think I think it's working for facial recognition at the very least. But uh, yeah, that was... Uh, so Shane, you didn't think to go, um, well, my name's Shane Cunningham. I have a friend named Sean Dawson. Like, well, did you no, not like, no, ask no, these no. any it, follow-up not, questions? How did you just stare at her? Because Shane Dawson is a very popular YouTuber. He's one of the most popular oh. YouTubers. It's not because of the Sean Dawson connection oh, okay. or the Brody Dawson. So I just thought sometimes people have asked me if I'm Shane Dawson. Okay. But no one's actually ever intentionally wanted to recognize me from the podcast. Oh. So I thought it was pretty cool. But you, but it could have been just someone thinking you're Shane Dawson, the other YouTuber. No, they didn't. They oh. mentioned she really likes the podcast. Oh, okay. She knew Mike on Mike. Oh, she knew. Okay, okay, okay. Actually, I had somewhat of a similar experience, uh, Shaney. <laughs> I was in Subway uh, getting some lunch. Sometimes I like to get a little tuna wrap, heat it up, <laughs> just cut treat down yourself. the middle. Yeah. yeah, whatever. I'm married now. Put on the pounds. So I... Uh, <laughs> I was in Subway, and the guy knows me because I go there like at least once a week. And he always jokes with me. He always tries to push the cookies on me. But I'm like, no, nah, I'm with the chips, brother. But he like he like he likes to needle me. We got that kind of relationship. <laughs> anyway, so I'm joking with uh, the dude at the counter. And the woman standing next to me, so she like heard me order, and now she hears me joking with the guy. And she says, excuse me. And I'm like, yeah. She goes, do you do a podcast? Huh. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, Michael Much. I'm like, yeah. She's like, I recognize your voice. Oh, that's she so goes, cool. I listen to your podcast. Um, actually, she asked me if I work at Bell Media or whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah. She's like, you do a podcast. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, 
because uh, this subway happens to be right beside 299 Queen Street West. I'm like, do you work at Bell Media? She's like, yeah. She's like, I'm actually a lawyer and I have to listen to your podcast. And then I started laughing. Oh, no. She was, but now I love it. She's like, I started, I had to listen to it out of obligation. I guess legal has to clear our podcast uh, or something. Oh, I had no idea. But so now she's a huge fan of the podcast. Right well, yeah, because that's, that's actually what I wanted. I was even scared to talk about it now because I stupidly, when we were doing the Facebook Live thing, started talking about the Billy Bush issue. <laughs> Yeah. And you luckily were on the, the the chat room on Facebook Live. You can do an ongoing chat as yeah. it goes and kind of told Mike to pivot or Mike did pivot Mike, away from yeah. it. So then I was wondering if we because Mike and I actually at this house uh, last Friday or something, we got in a huge like fight about <laughs> it at a party. <laughs> we like we, we were actually screaming. At it was, the a, it was, a, it was a debate. Fight is a strong word. We were, we were talking loudly, but it really affected me. <laughs> and so now at work, I feel really weird, like um, talking to uh, to people. Like when Candace had that video, like this this girl who sits across from us, she's an attractive girl. <laughs> okay, and she did a music video, uh-huh. and she she showed it to me. And so I'm I'm watching it. I was like, oh, she looks good. So normally I would say, oh, you look pretty. But then I was like, oh, fuck, I could get in trouble for saying that because <laughs> Billy Bush got in trouble for saying the girl was hot as shit. Oh, he got in trouble. For yeah. 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 Let's not rehash this debate, Shane. Yeah. We already saved your job once. <laughs> but, but anyways, when it was done, I just said, oh, you're going to get stalkers after this. <laughs> but then <laughs> he, he did say that. But then people were listening to me and they're like, stalkers. What do you mean? And Candace's like, yeah, what do you mean stalkers? She's like, you're a stalker. <laughs> And then it just was this weird thing where I felt like I was even weirder than had I actually just said, oh, you look really good. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I had another thing when we were out drinking the other day where uh, we, were, we went to an event where like all of our bosses were there. It was for like Bell Advertising. And then the Jays had a game that night. <laughs> so all the people who were at the Bell event went to the Jays game to have a celebratory drink. To a bar to watch the Jays game. Yeah. And Mike always tells me that higher-ups like to be treated like normal people. Like they don't like when you act like they're the boss. <laughs> to try what a to, crazy idea to just have a normal conversation with to somebody. To try to like bro down with them or whatever. Sure, yeah. And Mike's very good at talking to all the higher-ups and everything. <laughs> so typically when someone leaves a bar and they say they're going home, like it's there's a little ribbing. It's like, come on, stick around, you put. You know, (laughs) like, come on, don't be. But I'm like, okay, I can't do locker room talk, especially with work people. (laughs) That's a a phrase now. So instead of saying, (laughs) I'm like overthinking it. I'm actually like planning what I'm going to say. Okay. And I'm like, like, I'm nervous to say it because it's like one of the like boss people. And I go, oh, you're a loser. (laughs) (laughs) And then it just like... the air kind of goes it's out like of the It's like the room. music stopped record <laughs> yeah. scratch. It and was it so uncomfortable. It's like a jovial thing. I'm like, fuck, I should have called him a p-. <laughs> But then he comes over to me. He goes, loser? He goes, I have a $1.5 million home. <laughs> he said that? Yeah. yeah. Who and says I, that? I don't know. And then, and then I go, I don't know what to do. I'm all nervous. I go, ah, I have a $240,000 home in Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, he goes, I would have bought a car with that money. <laughs> <laughs> And the, you know, because I'm trying to be like humble. My house was actually three hundred nine thousand. So I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to be humble. But this Billy Bush thing honestly has me really affected on what I say, and I feel like it's like 
me and I'm not being myself now <laughs> in normal like work situations. So, 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 so uh, you're, uh, Billy Bush and this culture of like fear of what you might uh, say and how it's perceived has you jammed yeah, up. You're not yourself. We're doing Facebook Live, just the promo a little bit, every Thursday at noon where yeah. we have been. So that's a very terrifying thing because it's live. And then they, they rebroadcast what you do live. So you're kind of locked in, unlike now, where I've probably said a couple of times it's being beeped. <laughs> so people don't know really what I said. Right? Yeah, they you can't figure I mean? it out. So there's a little bit of safety here. Even this, though, is kind of scary. Shane, I know you, like, you know, aren't the most into, like, politically correct sort of conversations mm -hmm. or like you like to kind of play off like I'm just a, a dude from Hamilton and like I, I'm giving you my honest authentic take and that's mm -hmm. why people love you but you must be aware of like sort of what 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 are the lines that you might be crossing well, when it comes to that audience and that's what right? and, and the culture keeps changing and I'm changing as the culture does and think about 2005 like if, if there's oh a God, what happened in 2005 what, what would you say in 2005 well, as an example people always used to use the term gay as a synonym for lame yeah. And it was like super present among a lot of people I know in 2005. And now I never hear that word used ever. But if a recording came out and let's say this guy's 20 and now he's 33 or whatever, that guy could lose his job now in the culture we live in. And that's kind of scary because the rules keep changing what you can and can't say. I used to be able to say P now it's being beeped. Yeah. On, on this. So it is scary. So things retroactively. Wait, in what format were you able to say that word? You used to be able to say, uh, um, like in what setting? Sometimes when we're joking around, we're playing like a douchebag character of sorts. So if I'm like uh, mocking or miming what a guy who's a douchebag is doing, sometimes I'll say that in a drunken, joking context, not actually my opinion. If a recording went out, out of context, I could be fired. And that's scary. Yeah. Hey, actually, on that note, uh, there was a retrospective, I think, on The Ringer today about Taylor Swift's first record that came out 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And on that first record, there's a, there's a lyric that goes like, she's like getting mad at an ex-boyfriend. And she's like, you're going to do this? Well, I'll tell all my friends you're gay. Mm. And that's something that you, she would never say. Mm -hmm. Well, 10 years later. Right. And that was on her first major label record. So have you, have you ever called a little person a sure. referred to them as? Yep. That's risky, right? Yeah. Like, well, no, no, no. I would never now. That word, no. you can't use that word anymore. I was just going to say, I, a movie I saw, just to wrap it up, <laughs> is Mascots, Christopher Guest film. Oh, yeah. And I noticed they have a little person in the movie, and they make a ton <laughs> of jokes about the little person, but they sidestep it, and they never use the M word. Right. So I was like, oh, there's progress there. Ten years ago, he would have been called the M word. And look, I'm saying the M word now. So change so. maybe is a good thing, guys. Just to wrap it up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out <laughs> of a job. <laughs>
during the interview. Pasquale, he's a laugher. I like that. Yeah, he's he, Pasquale is a big Sam fan. He was just, he, you know, yeah. big moment for him. Pasquale, show some professionalism, okay? <laughs> <laughs> the Mike and Much podcast is produced by Max Kerman, and I am your host, Mike Veerman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.